Hello, hello. My name is Audra Ernst. I go by she, they pronouns. I am a grad student in KU's MSW program. I am your moderator today on the Social Work 720 podcast, where we talk about policy and doing the work. Today, we will be discussing predominant aggressor laws and mandatory arrests and how these laws will be affecting key populations in society. Taylor, would you like to introduce yourself and Catherine, you as well? For sure. Yes, I am Taylor Jones. I use the she series pronouns. Uh, I am currently a uh, MSW student, so I have found myself to be able to share this space with a lovely um, um partners in this space uh, coming out of SW720. Uh, I did previous work uh, at a domestic violence center servicing victim survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and human trafficking. And I also uh, facilitate battering intervention groups uh, for folks who have charges of domestic violence, domestic assault, uh, destruction of property, things like that. So my name is Katherine Orsikowski. Uh, as it's been mentioned, I am also a grad student here at KU, uh, part of the 720 class. Uh, a lot of my experience right now comes from working with kids with uh, behavioral concerns at an alternative school. What are your pronouns? Uh, mine's she series. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Taylor, for your expertise and sharing your knowledge to raise awareness about this. And thank you, Catherine, for adding to this spreading awareness and doing the advocacy work. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. <laughs> All right. Now, Catherine, would you like to get into the difference between predominant aggressor laws and um, mandatory arrest laws? Yeah. So right now, Kansas has what's known as a mandatory arrest laws, which is where when police respond to domestic violence calls, they have to arrest somebody. Usually they end up arresting both parties just because then there's no liability of, well, did I get the wrong person? Did I arrest the right person? They just arrest both of them, problem solved. Um, we're advocating for uh, the adoption of predominant aggressor laws, which is where police would receive training prior to responding to domestic violence cause calls, and then they would be able to arrest, as the name suggests, the dominant aggressor um, or you know the person who is most likely to be doing the abusing. Anything to add, Taylor? Uh, I think that that was great, right. Um, I think um, with these laws, a lot of agencies were um, trying to encourage their uh, employees or responders, officers, uh, to use their best judgment. Um, I think as we mentioned before or will be talking about soon is just the uh, introduction of probable cause in the 90s uh, or the popularized use of uh, probable cause in the 90s when responding uh, to different calls but then specifically with domestic violence uh, where that mandatory arrest law came in is basically mandating right an arrest of anyone using any sort of physical violence and so how that then becomes difficult um, when responding specifically to domestic violence um, calls is that uh, we're really not digging into more context and we're not digging into uh, the complexities of how physical violence is used. Therefore, if we're just kind of looking at it at a surface level and only 
putting or placing that value or placing that shall arrest piece on physical violence in general, what happens is we end up traumatizing a lot of people, specifically victim survivors who are already, um, how, would it, how would you say it, apprehensive to already have agencies like law enforcement intervene. Um, so I think Kat explained it very well. Can we just get into why it is complex? There's power dynamics, gender identities, sexual orientation identities, Anything else that could contribute to lack of proper discernment from first responders? I I think that right then requires to kind of take into consideration the lens at which not just law enforcement, but um, society as a whole, how relationships were viewed, therefore how violence and relationship violence was viewed. Um, so for the longest time, and then there, the, the blueprint is still even how some safety planning agencies and uh, crisis agencies still work, is that um, it's centering that basically the only folks who are experiencing domestic violence tend to be um, uh, 18 to 24-year-old cisgender able-bodied white women. And that is not the case. And so I, what we don't want to sit up here and say is, you know, that violence happening to anyone else is new. It's more so that um, the education around it or um, recognizing other people with different identities is what, um, uh, is what is being introduced, I would say, to a lot of different agencies. And so with that, uh, historically... Um, what that has then looked like is when responding to those calls, um, we're then looking at those relationships with a very specific lens um, that I'm coming in here. There's going to be a damsel in distress. There's going to be some man that I need to, um, you know, a- apprehend, arrest, and send to jail, and that will be it. Um, so when we are now, not now, but when we are responding to homes where there is either a same-sex couple uh, or there is um, a couple of color or specifically like a black couple um, who I may have been conditioned to already see as hyper-violent or like extremely violent or inherently violent, how is it that I how do I then tailor my skills or how do I then tailor what I've been taught or what I've been conditioned to think um, responding to this specific call? There was another part of that question that I wanted to answer, but can you ask it again? Um, Just like addressing the complexity um, with a modern approach to a modern world. Got it. Nope. There it is. Uh, So I think also then within that, um, we either once that once we're kind of shifting even who we think is creating harm or who we think is experiencing harm that also then requires that change and shift of um how we think violence is happening in relationships so uh again typically if we're only looking at it through like a heteronormative lens that it's going to be like the guy who is bigger who is stronger who is more powerful and then hitting on this very um I was going to say a fancy word, but I couldn't think of it. And I knew I was going to say it wrong. Um, But just small, um, right, quiet, um, domineering woman. Um, 
that there's that piece, but then there's also this piece of um, really where dual arrest then also comes from is this idea that there's a such thing as um, mutually abusive relationships. And so when we are in a space of thinking that two or multiple parties are using abuse or specifically using physical violence for the same reason, uh, that's how we kind of fall out of um, thinking about things more complex or, th- or really honoring the layers that come with relationships. Um, so that's kind of what r- throws off the complexities of that violence. And with that, I was going to ask you to go into the bias that a lot of us carry despite our best efforts, you know, um, that we view victimhood reactions and survivor reactions through a very narrow lens and it's not particularly like realistic situations like this and experiences like this um so that can flaw uh, first responders perceptions of the environment that's going down and affect their discernment yeah i was gonna say i mean not not having a ton of experience with that and like the question you asked before in taylor's response to think of all those biases it's getting the training to then understand like those power dynamics or how those things come into play but like if police don't have that training and don't have that understanding then those by they fall back on those biases and then that's where you see you know oh i'm gonna you know expect to go in and there's gonna be this big guy who's being physically violent and well you know that might not 100% 100% be the case. It might be, you know, same-sex couples, or maybe it's the uh, women-presenting individual be doing their abuse. So you you never know. But having that understanding and that knowledge is very important and very key. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, right, and so regardless, I, th- I think also what you're speaking to is um, that idea of what the perfect victim is supposed to look like or how they're supposed to act. And so even if someone is responding, even if we're not going off of phenotypes or going by like identity that we can see, there's still like this reliance on behavior. Um, But again, if we don't have like that training or we don't uh, talk about more layers and complexity to that behavior, then I probably am uh, on a whim just going for things that to me feel violent or feel irrational or feel hostile. So if it is that maybe the victim survivor has just experienced something very traumatic and their reaction to that when I arrive is that they are screaming and perhaps crying and maybe even yelling at me. But then I also have another person over here who is, you know, actually being um, very accommodating, very polite, uh, answering questions that I'm asking them in a very uh, succinct and reasonable manner. I am perhaps maybe going to either feel like I can identify with them more or want to uh, give them the benefit of the doubt. all of these things can be coming into my mind as to how I'm responding to this call. And, but what is, what is the repercussion of that? And where, who am I then traumatizing by making this, the decision based on, um, uh, very real reactions to trauma Mm -hmm. that I've though deemed, um, 
not perfect or um, um, less deserving of my help, essentially. Yeah, when you were saying that kind of, I kind of thought about it in class when we talked about the deserving and the undeserving, mm-hmm. like poor, like who, who do I think is deserving of my help? Like, are you the ideal victim? Should I help you? How should yeah. I help you? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Common themes in social work policy and social policy. Um, we see in every, everything that we do, I guess. Um, and it's our jobs to address that. So now that we've like established the barriers to like discerning discernment, um, of who might be the aggressor in the situation, um, let's get into why our dual, like, why is it better than dual arrest? Like we, we talked about how it might be traumatizing, um, and it's also victim blaming, but, um, do you have any like results or statistics that show that this is so much better than, than arresting someone who potentially just survived a, a physical attack from their partner? For sure. Um, and so perhaps we can get into like, well, how are they being traumatized? I think using that label, right, helping people kind of break that up. There's a, a lot of things like so a there could just be that confusion um that I thought someone was coming to my rescue or I thought that someone was coming to help me or to at least help diffuse the situation and now I am in handcuffs or now I am in a cell how does it go from this piece where I know I've experienced abuse or violence and I thought someone was going to be held accountable for that um, only to be met with, well, you're at fault too, or it takes two to tango, and I am in jail now. And with jail comes court dates. With that comes continuances. With that comes fees. With that comes representation. Can I afford representation? Uh, and if I can, um, still, what does that mean for me if the if the law still is about you shall make an arrest if anyone uses physical violence. I'm probably also going to feel very defeated um, and may even may even take some sort of plea if I'm being charged mm-hmm. because that is what happened. I did use physical violence, uh, and when someone responded, that that is what met the criteria. Um, so what does that mean for me? If there's a case brought against me, um, what does that mean to um, have things stripped away from me? Uh, if I am if I am with the other person that I perhaps live with, and we both then are taken taken into custody, uh, say we have children, who is supposed to look after those children now? What happens? Uh, what happens to them? Um, what happens if I am picked up during the week and now I'm missing work until I have to then see a judge? Um, who is going to make up for that time lost? How I'm how am I going to get paid for that work that's been lost, or how am I going to? keep my job now that I've been uh, arrested? Is my employer even going to care to look into the details of that situation? Are they going to be um, um, empathetic toward what has happened? Uh, what if I have experienced personal injury? Um, the I think, it, I think that's still the, I think that's still the number. Uh, the United States 
annually loses around like $2 billion just due to domestic violence. And that's just more so for um, uh, like emergency room fees, uh, right? The cost to what that means for different uh, injuries, like so hospital bills, but that's also just straight up loss um, in terms of time and work. Uh, So the amount of days or the amount of hours that someone needs to take away from their job is also costing uh, money. so there's a lot of just different consequences that, again, like Catherine and I were saying, like in the moment, yes, we get the liability space uh, or the safety space that a lot of responders think that they are coming from uh, when making those sorts of arrests. But the the fallout of a lot of the consequences uh, or effects on people, um, but specifically the victim survivor um they are they they run they run very long compared to I think what we're thinking about in the moment so what I'm hearing is that adopting predominant aggressor laws would help save money would help protect and you know help survivors in the long run so Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely a thing we should be supporting and should be doing and (laughs) you know liability is a thing but if we train first responders that will also probably go down for sure. Because uh, they like talk about this with parenting, right? Like, yes, in the moment you think putting some, like spanking someone or putting them in mm-hmm. a corner or sending them to isolation in their room, like works in the moment and like really gives you that instant gratification of getting a need, like getting essentially your needs met as the adult, right? Um, yes, it saved you some time or it saved you, um, saved you whatever sort of like ego you had in the moment uh but wow the long-lasting effects that come from those sorts of punitive measures both on you both on that child uh that relationship in the long run when they're an adult all of those things are affected and i think the same way with these sorts of arrests yes in the moment it probably alleviated some situations help maybe helped you feel better about your decision that you were making obviously that means i'm helping towards safety if no one's around and everyone just goes away um but again long-term effects uh in many different areas um emotional developmental um even for children who might be present financial all of those different um um outcomes are possible thank you for like going into real life examples to give some enlightenment to like the audience and even myself like i i haven't considered that i'm sure not a lot of first responders or even social workers get to see that and i'm sure you see that in a day-to-day at your practicum unless we spread awareness about this there's nothing that's going to happen to address it so um i really appreciate your time and thank you catherine for asking the questions that we were all thinking when listening to taylor's examples and experiences We're going to lean into this more and figure out both sides of the argument as to why this bill died and how we can improve it and reintroduce it and what anyone and everyone can do to help with that process in the next episode. Thank you for your time.